The Guardian. The Guardian Short Stories Podcast. I am Ruth Rendell and I am going to read Canon Alberic Scrapbook by M.R. James. Saint-Bertrand de Comanche is a decayed town on the spurs of the Pyrenees, not very far from Toulouse and still nearer to Bagnard de Luchon. It was the site of a bishopric until the Revolution and has a cathedral which is visited by a certain number of tourists. In the spring of 1883, an Englishman arrived at this old world place. I can hardly dignify it with the name of city, for there are not a thousand inhabitants. He was a Cambridge man who had come specially from Toulouse to see Saint-Bertrand's church and had left two friends, who were less keen archaeologists than himself, in their hotel at Toulouse, and had promised to join him on the following morning. Half an hour at the church would satisfy them, and all three could then pursue their journey in the direction of Oath. But our Englishman had come early on the day in question, and proposed to himself to fill a notebook and to use several dozens of plates in in the process of describing and photographing every corner of the wonderful church that dominates the little hill of Comminges. In order to carry out this design satisfactorily, it was necessary to monopolise the verger of the church for the day. The verger, or sacristan, I prefer the latter appellation, inaccurate as it may be, was accordingly sent for by the somewhat brusque lady who keeps the inn of the Chapeau Rouge, and when he came, the Englishman found him an unexpectedly interesting object of study. It was not in the personal appearance of the little dry, wizened old man that the interest lay, for he was precisely like dozens of other church guardians in France, but in a curious, furtive, or rather hunter-no-pressed air which he had. He was perpetually half-glancing behind him, The muscles of his back and shoulders seemed to be hunched in a continual nervous contraction, as if he were expecting every moment to find himself in the clutch of an enemy. The Englishman hardly knew whether to put him down as a man haunted by a fixed delusion, or as one oppressed by a guilty conscience, or as unbearably henpecked husband. The probabilities, when reckoned up, certainly pointed to the last idea, but still the impression conveyed was that of a more formidable persecutor, even than a termagant wife. However, the Englishman, let us call him Deniston, was soon too deep in his notebook and too busy with his camera to give more than an occasional glance to the sacristan. Whenever he did look at him, he found him at no great distance, either huddling himself back against the wall or crouching in one of the gorgeous stalls. Oh, won't you go home, he said at last. I'm quite well able to finish my notes alone. You can lock me in if you like. I shall want at least two hours more here, and it must be cold for you, isn't it? Good heaven, said the little man, whom the suggestion seemed to throw into a state of unaccountable terror. Such a thing cannot be thought of for a moment. Leave Monsieur alone in the church? No, no, two hours, three hours, all will be the same to me. I have breakfasted, I am not at all cold, with many thanks to Monsieur. Very well, my little man, quoth Deniston to himself, you have been warned, and you must take the consequences. 
Before the expiration of the two hours, the stalls, the enormously dilapidated organ, the choir screen of Bishop John de Molion, the remnants of glass and tapestry, and the objects in the treasure chamber had been well and truly examined. The sacristan still keeping at Denniston's heels, and every now and then whipping round as if he had been stung, when one or other of the strange noises that trouble a large empty building fell on his ear. Curious noises they were, sometimes. Once, Denison said to me, I could have sworn I heard a thin, metallic voice laughing high up in the tower. I darted an inquiring glance at my sacristan. He was white to the lips. It is he, that is, it is no one, the door is locked, was all he said, and we looked at each other for a full minute. It was nearly five o'clock. The short day was drawing in, and the church began to fill with shadows, while the curious noises, the muffled footfalls and distant talking voices that had been perceptible all day, seemed no doubt because of the fading light and the consequently quickened sense of hearing to become more frequent and insistent. The sacristan began for the first time to show signs of hurry and impatience. He heaved a sigh of relief when camera and notebook were finally packed up and stowed away, and hurriedly beckoned Deniston to the western door of the church under the tower. On the doorstep they fell into conversation. Monsieur seemed to interest himself in the old choir books in the sacristy. Undoubtedly, I was going to ask you if there were a library in the town. No, monsieur. Perhaps there used to be one belonging to the chapter, but it is now such a small place. Here came a strange pause of irresolution, as it seemed. Then, with a sort of plunge, he went on. But but if monsieur is amateur des vieux livres, I have at home something that might interest him. It is not a hundred yards. At once, all Deniston cherished dreams of finding priceless manuscripts in untrodden corners of France, flashed up to die down again at the next moment. It was probably a stupid missile of Plantin's printing, about 1580. Where was the likelihood that a place so near Toulouse would not have been ransacked long ago by collectors? However, it would be foolish not to go. He would reproach himself for ever if he refused. So they set off. They were soon at the house which was run rather larger than its neighbours, stone-built, with a shield carved over the door, the shield of Alberic de Moléon, a collateral descendant, Deniston tells me, of Bishop John de Moléon. This Alberic was a canon of Comminges, from 1680 to 1701. The upper windows of the mansion were boarded up, and the whole place bore, as does the rest of Comminges, the aspect of decaying age. Arrived on his doorstep, the sacristan paused a moment. Perhaps, he said, perhaps after all, monsieur has not the time. Not at all, lots of time, nothing to do till tomorrow. Let us see what it is you have got. The door was opened at this point, and a face looked out. A face far younger than the sacristan's, but bearing something of the same distressing look. Only here it seemed to be the mark, not so much of fear for personal safety as of acute anxiety on behalf of another. Plainly the owner of the face was a sacristan's daughter, and but for the expression I have described, she was a handsome girl enough. She brightened up considerably on seeing her father, accompanied by an able-bodied stranger. 
A few remarks passed between father and daughter of which Deniston caught only these words said by the sacristan. He was laughing in the church, words which were answered only by a look of terror from the girl. But in another minute they were in the sitting room of the house, a small high chamber with a stone floor full of moving shadows cast by a wood fire that flickered on a great hearth. Something of the character of an oratory was imparted to it by a tall crucifix which reached almost to the ceiling on one side. The figure was painted of the natural colours. The cross was black. Under this stood a chest of some age and solidity, and when a lamp had been brought and chairs set, the sacristan went to this chest and produced therefrom, with growing excitement and nervousness, as Deniston thought, a large book wrapped in a white cloth, on which cloth a cross was rudely embroidered in red thread. Even before the wrapping had been removed, Deniston began to be interested by the size and shape of the volume. Too large for a missa, he thought, and not the shape of an antiphona. Perhaps it may be something good after all. The next moment the book was open, and Deniston felt that he had at last lit upon something better than good. Before him lay a large folio, bound, perhaps late in the seventeenth century, with the arms of Canon Aubrey de Moléon, stamped in gold on the side. There may have been a hundred and fifty leaves of paper in the book, and on almost every one of them was fastened a leaf from an illuminated manuscript. Such a collection Denison had hardly dreamed of in his wildest moments. His mind was made up. That book must return to Cambridge with him, even if he had to draw the whole of his balance from the bank and stay at Saint-Bertrand till the money came. He glanced up at the sacristan to see if his face yielded any hint that the book was for sale. The sacristan was pale and his lips were working. If monsieur will turn on to the end, he said. So monsieur turned on, meeting new treasures at every rise of belief, and at the end of the book he came upon two sheets of paper, of much more recent date than anything he had seen yet, which puzzled him considerably. They must be contemporary, he decided, with the unprincipled canon Alberic, who have doubtless plundered the chapter library of Saint-Bertrand to form this priceless scrapbook. On the first of the paper sheets was a plan, carefully drawn and instantly recognisable by a person who knew the ground of the south aisle and cloisters of Saint-Bertrand. There were curious signs, looking like planetary symbols, and a few Hebrew words in the corners, and in the northwest angle of the cloister was a cross drawn in gold paint. Below the plan were some lines of writing in Latin, which ran thus. Answers of the 12th of December, 1694. It was asked, Shall I find it? Answer, Thou shalt. Shall I become rich? Thou wilt. Shall I live an object of envy? Thou wilt. Shall I die in my bed? Thou wilt. A good specimen of the treasure hunter's record quite reminds one of Mr. Minor Canon Quartermain in Old St. Paul's with Deniston's comment, and he turned the leaf. What he then saw impressed him as he has often told me, more than he could have conceived any drawing or picture capable of impressing him. And though the drawing he saw is no longer in existence, 
There is a photograph of it, which I possess, which fully bears out that statement. The picture in question was a sepia drawing at the end of the 17th century, representing, one would say at first sight, a biblical scene. For the architecture, the picture represented an interior, and the figures had that semi-classical flavour about them, which the artists of 200 years ago thought appropriate to illustrations of the Bible. On the right was a king upon his throne, the throne elevated on twelve steps, a canopy overhead, soldiers on either side, evidently King Solomon. He was bending forward with outstretched scepter in attitude of command. His face expressed horror and disgust, yet there was in it also the mark of imperious command and confident power. The left half of the picture was the strangest, however. The interest plainly centred there. On the pavement before the throne were grouped four soldiers, surrounding a crouching figure which must be described in a moment. A fifth soldier lay dead on the pavement, his neck distorted and his eyeballs starting from his head. The four surrounding guards were looking at the king. In their faces the sentiment of horror was intensified. They seemed in fact only restrained from flight by their implicit trust in their master. All this terror was plainly excited by the being that crouched in their midst. I entirely despair of conveying by any words the impression which this figure makes upon anyone who looks at it. I recollect once showing the photograph of the drawing to a lecturer on morphology, a person of, I was going to say, abnormally sane and unimaginative habits of mind. He absolutely refused to be alone for the rest of that evening and he told me afterwards that for many nights he had not dared to put out his light before going to sleep. However, the main traits of the figure I can at least indicate. At first you saw only a mass of coarse, matted black hair. Presently it was seen that this covered a body of fearful thinness, almost a skeleton, but with the muscles standing out like wires. The eyes, touched in with a burning yellow, had intensely black pupils and were fixed upon the throne king with a look of beast-like hate. Imagine one of the awful bird-catching spiders of South America translated into human form and endowed with intelligence just less than human, and you will have some faint conception of the terror inspired by the appalling effigy. One remark is universally made by those to whom I have shown the picture. It was drawn from the life. As soon as the first shock of his irresistible fright had subsided, Deniston stole a look at his hosts. The sacristan's hands were pressed upon his eyes. His daughter, looking up at the cross on the wall, was telling her beads feverishly. At last the question was asked, Is this book for sale? There was the same hesitation, the same plunge of determination that he had noticed before, and then came the welcome answer, If monsieur pleases, how much do you ask for it? I will take 250 francs. This was confounding. Even a collector's conscience is sometimes stirred, and Denison's conscience was tenderer than a collector's. My good man, he said again, and again your book is worth far more than 250 francs. I assure you, far more. But the answer did not vary. I will take 250 francs, not more. 
There was really no possibility of refusing such a chance. The money was paid, the receipt signed, a glass of wine drunk over the transaction, and then the sacristan seemed to become a new man. He stood upright. He ceased to throw those suspicious glances behind him. He actually laughed or tried to laugh. Deniston rose to go. I shall have the honour of accompanying Monsieur to his hotel, said the sacristan. Oh, no, thanks. It isn't a hundred yards. I know the way perfectly, and there is a moon. The offer was pressed three or four times and refused as often. Then Monsieur will summon me if, if he finds occasion, he will keep to the middle of the road. The sides are so rough. Certainly, certainly, said Denison, who was impatient to examine his prize by himself and he stepped out into the passage with his book under his arm. Here he was met by the daughter. She, it appeared, was anxious to do a little business on her own account, perhaps like Gehazi, to take somewhat from the foreigner whom her father had spared. A silver crucifix and chain for the neck. Monsieur would perhaps be good enough to accept it. Well, really, Denison hadn't much use for these things. What did Mademoiselle want for it? Nothing. Nothing in the world. Monsieur is more than welcome to it. The tone in which this and much more was said was unmistakably genuine, so Denison was reduced to profuse thanks and submitted to have the chain put round his neck. It seemed as if he had rendered the father and daughter some service which they hardly knew how to repay. As he set off with his book, they stood at the door looking after him, and they were still looking when he waved them a last good night from the steps of the Chapeau Rouge. Dinner was over, and Deniston was in his bedroom, shut up alone with his acquisition. The landlady had manifested a particular interest in him, since he had told her that he paid a visit to the sacristan and bought an old book from him. He thought, too, that he had heard a hurried dialogue between her and the said Sir Christian in the passage outside the salle manger, some words to the effect that Pierre and Bertrand would be sleeping in the house had closed the conversation. All this time, a growing feeling of discomfort had been creeping over him. Nervous reaction, perhaps, after the delight of his discovery. Whatever it was, it resulted in a conviction that there was someone behind him, and that he was far more comfortable with his back to the wall. All this, of course, weighed light in the balance as against the obvious value of the collection he had acquired, and now, as I said, he was alone in his bedroom, taking stock of Canon Albrecht's treasures, in which every moment revealed something more charming. "'Bless Canon Albrecht,' said Deniston, who had an inveterate habit of talking to himself. "'I wonder where he is now.' Dear me, I wish that landlady would learn to laugh in a more cheering manner. It makes one feel as if there was someone dead in the house. Half a pipe more, did you say? I think perhaps you are right. I wonder what that crucifix is that the young woman insisted on giving me last century, I suppose. Yes, probably. It's rather a nuisance of a thing to have round one's neck, just too heavy. Most likely her father has been wearing it for years. I think I might give it a clean-up before I put it away. He had taken the crucifix off and laid it on the table when his attention was caught by an object lying on the red cloth just by his left elbow. Two or three ideas of what it might be flitted through his brain with their own incalculable quickness. A pen wiper? No such thing in the house. A rat? No, too black. 
a large spider, I trust to goodness. No good God, a hand like the hand in that picture. In another infinitesimal flash, she had taken it in. Pale, dusky skin, covering nothing but bones and tendons of appalling strength. Coarse black hairs, longer than ever grew on a human hand. Nails rising from the ends of the fingers and curving sharply down and forward, grey, horny and wrinkled. He flew out of his chair with deadly inconceivable terror clutching at his heart. The shape whose left hand rested on the table was rising to a standing posture behind his seat, its right hand crooked above his scalp. There was black and tattered drapery about it. The horsehair covered it as in the drawing. The lower jaw was thin. What can I call it? Shallow like a beast's. Teeth showed behind the black lips. There was no nose. The eyes of a fiery yellow against which the pupils showed black and intense. And the exulting hate and thirst to destroy life which shone there were the most horrifying features in the whole vision. There was intelligence of a kind in them. Intelligence beyond that of a beast, below that of a man. The feelings which this horror stirred in Deniston were the intensest physical fear and the most profound mental loathing. What did he do? What could he do? He has never been quite certain what words he said, but he knows that he spoke, that he grasped blindly at the silver crucifix, that he was conscious of a movement towards him on the part of the demon, and that he screamed with the voice of an animal, in hideous pain. Pierre and Bertrand, the two sturdy serving men who rushed in, saw nothing, felt themselves thrust aside by something that passed out between them and found Deniston in a swoon. They sat up with him that night, and his two friends were at Saint-Bertrand by nine o'clock next morning. He himself, though still shaken and nervous, was almost himself by that time, and his story found credence with them, though not until they had seen the drawing and talked with the sacristan. Almost at dawn, the little man had come to the inn on some pretense, and had listened with the deepest interest to the story retailed by the landlady. He showed no surprise. It is he, it is he, I have seen him myself, was his only comment, and to all questionings but one reply was vouchsafed. Deux fois je l'ai vu. Mille fois je l'ai senti. He would tell them nothing of the provenance of the book, nor any details of his experiences. I shall soon sleep, and my rest will be sweet. Why should you trouble me? he said. We shall never know what he or Canon Alberic de Moléon suffered. At the back of that fateful drawing were some lines of writing, which may be supposed to throw light on the situation. The dispute of Solomon with a demon of the night, drawn by Alberic de Moléon, versicle, O Lord, make haste to help me, Psalm 41, Whoso dwelleth. Saint-Bertrand, who put us devils to plight, pray for me most unhappy. I saw it first on the night of December the 12th, 1694. Soon I shall see it for the last time. I have sinned and suffered and have more to suffer yet. December the 29th, 1701. I have never quite understood what was Deniston's view of the events I have narrated. He quoted to me once a text from Ecclesiasticus, Some spirits there be that are created for vengeance, and in their fury lay on sore strokes. 
On another occasion, he said, Isaiah was a very sensible man. Doesn't he say something about night monsters living in the ruins of Babylon? These things are rather beyond us at present. Another confidence of his impressed me rather, and I sympathised with it. We had been last year to Comans to see Canon Albrecht's tomb. It is a great marble erection with an effigy of the canon in a large wig and soutane and an elaborate eulogy of his learning below. I saw Deniston talking for some time with the vicar of Saint-Bertrand and as we drove away he said to me, I hope it isn't wrong. You know I'm a Presbyterian but I... I believe there will be sayings of mass and singing of dirges for Alvaric de Moléon's rest. Then he added, with a touch of the northern British in his tone, I had no notion they came so dear. The book is in the Wentworth collection at Cambridge. The drawing was photographed and then burnt by Deniston on the day when he left Comminges, on the occasion of his first visit. Now here's Lisa Allardyce, editor of Guardian Review. Ruth, I'm so pleased that you chose this story to read. Firstly, because it's a ghost story and absolutely perfect for Christmas and is is set, in fact, in December. But also because it was written by M.R. James to be read aloud, as was his tradition. Each year he'd, he'd write, and I think he only wrote one story a year, he would write a story to read to his friends just before Christmas at King's College, Cambridge. I think they were called the Chit Chat Club. I think you said before we started that this was your very favourite ghost story. Why does it appeal to you so much? I do like Victorian ghost stories better than any other, and M.R. James better than, than any of those. I don't think we can do it anymore. We've got too much electric light and too much technology. But this one is my favourite because I find it so frightening. It's peculiarly believable. Of course, one doesn't believe in ghosts. Whatever Mr Deniston saw, if he existed, was not anything like that. But you believe it. And M.R. James was amazing because, of course, his head, his mind was full of knowledge. He actually would would cycle around in the summer looking at old churches and cathedrals in France and things like that. And he, he, the sort of the thrill of the chase of finding things was something that he himself loved doing, didn't he? He knew it all. And but the, the, the I think the interesting thing is that he did no particular research or anything before he wrote these stories. It was there in his head anyway, but he just wrote them down. He says that somewhere, that um, he, he just wrote them down. He took no particular trouble with them, and he was very modest about them. And yet nobody, I think, ever wrote stories that are so both frightening and believable. Deniston himself is quite an interesting character, isn't he? Because you sort of think that he is just an alter ego for, for, for James. He's an antiquarian. He, he, he does the same things that, that James would have done. And yet he's very clear to sort of say, let's call him Deniston. And as Deniston said to me... That's all part of um, James's skill, isn't it? it it's what... Um, it, it creates very similitude. It is because he says these things. It, it's the way people do talk. And it all helps us believe that this probably did happen to M.R. James or, or Deniston wandering around in France. 
Do you think that short stories are particularly suited to the ghost story? Yes, I do. I think that long ghost stories don't really work, just as I don't think ghost stories work today. I've only read one ghost story that was written in modern times, a contemporary ghost story, that I really feel comes across, and that is Elizabeth Jane Howe's Three Miles Up. But I've never read another. I think, as I said before, that when we can have unlimited amounts of light and warmth and comfort and everything we want, more or less, um, it, it killed the ghost story. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.